Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. The healthcare landscape is changing in many ways. Pharmacists in Pennsylvania and across the country want to see even bigger changes, allowing them to expand their services to patients in some areas that right now could only be performed by a physician. And they also support legislation that would make sure they be compensated, compensated through Medicare. Joining us on the program today to talk about this is Patricia Eppel, who is Secretary Treasurer of the Pennsylvania Pharmacists Association. Ms. Apple, welcome to the program. Good morning. How are you? Good. And uh, also joining us is Charles Cray, owner of Hershey CKC Pharmacy and Gift Shop. Mr. Cray, welcome to the program. Great to be here, Scott. Thank you. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or you can send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can go to WITF's Facebook page if you have a question or a comment. All right, uh, I'm going to start with uh, the, the broad question. The biggest question of all is, why do you think pharmacists should take a bigger role? Healthcare is changing so dramatically. The Affordable Care Act uh, has made uh, new models possible. Uh, the old traditional fee for service is still there to a degree, but it's rapidly changing. So when you look at some of the cost-driven things, uh, everybody looks at expanding a pharmacist role and the cost becomes a issue. But um, when you look at the overall package and what the uh, you're able to save on the backside through interventions, uh, it becomes a model that's doable. We've got the uh, um, medical homes where the pharmacists are involved. Um, the training of pharmacists has changed. When I went to school, it was a five-year program. Now it's a six-year program. And many of the pharmacists are doing an extra year rotation um, internship. So the training is there. The need is there. Obamacare has put, uh, the Affordable Care Act has put a lot of additional people into the healthcare system. The supply of physicians is going to not keep up with the demand for services uh, as we age. So there's a lot of reasons why new models are uh, being proposed right now. And we're going to talk about all those things, but I'm curious as to some of the examples that you bring up. Uh, or could you provide some examples where Obamacare has opened up some opportunities? Um, pharmacists are doing a lot of uh, MTM, medication therapy management. So we do that with uh, all Medicare D plans. Medicare D was brought up uh, probably about 10, 12 years ago uh, at the end of the Clinton, beginning of the Bush administration. And so most of those people who are on significant amount of medications require regular medication reviews uh, if they're on multiple disease states. That's one of the other things that I think is contributing to the fact that we are seeing this changing role. Um, almost 50% of the American people now are on or have some type of chronic medical condition. And about a fourth of them, about 25%, have at least two chronic medical conditions. The simple fact is we're living longer we're getting better health care. We have medications that keep us going a long time. Uh, you used to have a heart attack, and your prognosis probably wasn't real great for survival after five years. Now it's insignificant. Uh, you, you're going to be around 10, 20, 30, 40 years die of something else. So the fact that people are living longer, there's multiple disease management, there's more medication therapy, the number of medications people actually take is increasing. Um, and it's good in that it's prolonging life and providing a quality of life, but it also leads to that possibility of extra drug interactions and uh, you know, chronic, uh, chronic management requirements. What are some of the procedures that uh, you think that pharmacists could perform that they're not now? 
Um, some of the things that we've begun to do, things like med, med synchronization, um, we've been doing this in our pharmacy for a couple months now. So one of the barriers is people might have to get, you know, the one medication, their, their statin they're going to get today because the insurance company is going to pay for it today. Then next week they can get their blood pressure medication. Then the week after they can get the other medication. So we've actually begun to work with our residents and, and uh, some of our uh, um insurance carriers to try to get them synced up, that they can make one trip a month to get those medications. Um, we're doing things like compliance packaging, where we'll fill metasets or strip packaging for patients to make it easier for them to take them at the same time. Um, some of those simple things like that promote medication adherence. I think the statistic I read when I was doing a little reading on this, it's about $100 billion, with a B, dollars a year wasted because people don't take medication and end up in the hospital. People feel good. They don't sense that they have hypertension, but they don't take their blood pressure medication. They end up with a stroke, a heart attack, and the complications are tremendous. So the more we can educate people, the more we can make it easier for them to stay compliant with their medication regimen, the, the healthier we're going to be and the cost savings to the system are going to be there. What you just made, Go ahead. What were you going to say? I was going to say it's not so much that um, what we're talking about is going to change what pharmacists can do. It's more providing the compensation for things that already in law and through training, as Chuck mentioned, they're already trained to do. Um, so it's giving that opportunity to be compensated so more of that can be done, taking some of the burden off the physicians to just help complement their diagnosis services. Aren't they compensated now? No, pharmacists, for many of the things that Chuck mentioned, are not compensated for that. For example? Um, well, they're not necessarily paid to help MedSync. They're not necessarily paid to sit down with patients to review all the different medications they receive. Um, they're not necessarily paid, in some cases, to deliver immunizations. Um, it all depends on their insurance coverage on that. Um, so there's a lot of different areas where they could be very helpful in providing consultation around diabetes, um, hypertension, the medications they're on which currently there is you know, limited compensation out there and certainly not in the Medicare Part D to the extent that it sh uh, Part B um, services as much as it should be or Medicaid. Okay, for, for those of us who are not involved with D or B, <laughs> what are the differences? Um, B is mostly the hospital healthcare side of it, and D is purely the medications. And when those buckets are separated, um, the correlation between savings and cost isn't seen as much. Yeah, when uh, you talked about uh, D, Medicare D coming on board like 10 years ago. That was the big controversy before Obamacare. We, <laughs> we, we ever heard of o Obamacare, if people remember back to the Bush years when that first started. But you know something that, uh, Chuck, that you just mentioned, though, as I was listening to you, all the things you described. Now, I know that, you know, we're going to get into some other things where you're looking for an expanded role, but all the things you just described still have to do with medications. Yes. Um, what's changed to a degree is some of the management with medications. There's some of the states, particularly I think California and, a few, and uh, Washington State, are very progressive with uh, um, ability to do collaborative practice agreements. That's one of the key components. Pennsylvania has just passed legislation to allow collaborative practice. All right, what's that mean? So that basically means that you would work with a physician, uh, some type of practitioner. You would enter an agreement where you can help them to monitor their patients. I'll give you an example that you see a lot of times in the hospitals. Um, you'll see Coumadin clinics. So the, the, per, the person is going to have that 
Coumadin, which is called a narrow therapeutic index drug. It has to be very exactly dosed to stay uh, in, in the right ranges. That's blood pressure. Uh, Coumadin right? is for coagulation, for, oh, for okay. plotting. Right, so if I'm somebody sorry. had a stroke, they would be on an anticoagulant. Okay, um, I shouldn't try to diagnose while I'm sitting <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. And, 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 the, and the ability to um, have the test sometimes a couple times a week, but then their, their physician may be waiting for the lab result. Then he's going to send the order to the pharmacy. A lot of times they've got the a protocol set up in the hospitals where they will get that result and they will go with an automatic protocol to, okay, if it's this, we go to that dose. If it's this, we go to this dose. And those kind of things save time in the healthcare system. In the long-term care side, we do a lot of nursing facilities. And we're constantly waiting for the lab test happening in the morning, for the order to get to us by 5 or 6 o'clock so we can get it out the door and get it to the patient by 8 o'clock. So if you can make some of those protocols up, you know, we know what they're going to do. If it's if they're INR, the test that they use is X, they're going to go to Y. And some of those kind of protocols can save a lot of time and, uh, and aggravation in the system. Now, you know, uh, Patricia mentioned a few of these things, the expanded roles that you're looking for, and I just wanted to talk specifically about them. Chronic disease management, uh, what are some of the examples? This is one of the areas where you're looking to expand to. I think hypertension is primarily one of the big ones. Diabetes. Diabetes is huge. Diabetes is one thing I hear most often. Yes. In what way? But what would you do? Part of the diabetes, and I think there was a study in uh, Minnesota um, where they actually empowered a, a group of pharmacists to work with the physicians to uh, adjust their uh, medications. The, the key thing with diabetes is to get the number to a controlled number. And when you have your blood sugar controlled, then you don't get the complications long-term that you do uncontrolled. They found that in that study, it was 2010, with medical assistance and the state employees, that they ended up with 36% of the diabetic population being under control versus 6% of the population statewide. So it's a significant change because they were able to look at that, monitor, and make the appropriate recommendations. Go ahead. And I was going to say, that's only one study. I know that there are literally hundreds of studies that have been done, particularly around diabetes, but hypertension is another one, um, where the pharmacist involvement in that care and watching those medications on a more close Close, more closely than a physician is able to, just because of their time, um, have shown significant results that are that are keep the patients under better control and deliver good quality care. Chuck mentioned Washington, the state of Washington. I know that uh, this is something that has happened in Washington. Some other states like Oregon and California have been looking at expansion, but Washington is one that has endorsed it, and it's been going on for a while now. When I say a while, maybe a year or so. Have you seen? what kind of results they've gotten in Washington. I don't have those results in front of me, but I know that they're going to be good if they're <laughs> they have to be, um, because we've seen that in so many other studies. But there's a lot of other states who are doing some very progressive things too. California comes to mind. Um, there's also states that are working with their Medicaid population um, to control those types of diseases. Ohio's one of them. Um, so there are some in our backyard too as well. Mm -hmm. Immunizations. Uh, all 50 states are now able to. Pharmacists are able to. Uh, provide immunizations for flu vaccines in all 50 states. Now, that's relatively new. That's only happened within the past 20 years or so. I think the 50th state was Maine, and that was about uh, eight years ago or so, something like that. But there are other immunizations that are administered by pharmacists in other states, not here in Pennsylvania. What would have to be done to expand well, that? Well, right now in Pennsylvania, pharmacists can administer any vaccination 
immunization oh, really? of, of, for adults over the age of 18. Oh, see, I didn't know that. I'm um, learning something but here today. we can only do immunizations for children for flu from 9 and up. Okay. And that's a recent development. The 9 and up just uh, changed this fall. Um, so what's I guess, the difference? Why? why? I mean, what's um, the difference? Actually, we thought that there shouldn't be any age restriction, as there should, as there is not in some other states. Um, but I think that again, that's where physicians had some concern, particularly in the young children with wellness visits um, and keeping them, because some of those some of those vaccinations need multiple boosters, and they wanted to make sure that whole complement happened. I think raising the age or allowing pharmacists to do immunizations from nine and up for many other vaccine vaccines will happen at some point in time. It needs to happen. Um, family. Um, come into pharmacies for flu vaccines and bring their children in and they want to also say, well, what about my teenage kid for um, the HPV or what about this or what about that? And pharmacists have to say, I cannot do that right now. So it's going to change at some point. It needs to change. There's no reason it shouldn't. Health screenings. What, uh, What are you looking for there? Health screenings is a interesting topic, and it depends what you're looking at. Some of them are very easy to do. Some of them are more complex. It all depends whether you're drawing blood or not, and you have to get CLIA waivers and those kind of things. We're looking at uh, changing our model in pharmacy. You know, I've been a traditional pharmacy now for 35 years. I've owned pharmacies, and we're looking at uh, an expansion. And part of that expansion will be very clinical uh, offering based. Uh, and I've got one of my pharmacists who. Uh, is really uh, on top of all these things, and he's been beginning to get some of those programs going, and uh, the pharmacists are really jumping on board. They're all uh, beginning to um, pick an expertise. So I'm going to do, like, men's health. Another one's going to do diabetes. One's going to do wound management. And hopefully with this, we'll have people on staff that will always be there that can answer questions. Um, Sometimes when you walk out of a physician's office and you receive a diagnosis, you're a little bit like the deer in the headlights. And, you know, it's, it's 24 or 48 hours later where, you know, geez, I've got all these questions. And that's one of the advantages of, of having pharmacists be able to do some of these things is we're very easily accessible. You don't need to make an appointment. You don't have the high copay. Uh, the reality is ours is zero right now. You walk in and you get the information. And so that's what we're trying to do is pick up on the knowledge that we've uh, acquired. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're discussing expanded role for pharmacists here in Pennsylvania. And our guests today are uh, Patricia Eppel, who is secretary treasurer of the Pennsylvania Pharmacists Association, and Charles Cray, owner of Hershey CKC Pharmacy and Gift Shop. We welcome your questions and comments. Give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You also can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, the phone number is 1-800-729-7532. And today's program is part of WITF's Transforming Health Project. Take a deeper look at the changing tide of health care. Check out WITF's Transforming Health. From policy to personal choices, we're taking a comprehensive look at today's health system online at transforminghealth.org, a partnership of WITF, Penn State Hershey Medical Center, and Wellspan Health. All right. We talked very early on, but I just wanted to make sure that uh, we clarify this a little bit. Uh, There are several things that uh, you mentioned. An aging population, I think most people here in Pennsylvania realize that uh, our population is getting old a lot quicker than uh, many other states. Uh, We have as you have quoted, uh, fewer primary care doctors, and I assume you're talking about primary care yes. doctors, right, mm-hmm. uh, that are 
coming down the road because most of our primary care doctors are up there in age and may be retiring within the next few years. Also talk about rural areas being underserved, that uh, there aren't as many doctors, physicians in rural areas of Pennsylvania and across the country as there are in uh, the, the urban areas that, are, that only make sense. Um, so with those things in mind, and that may just answer the question, but what's driving this? What's driving this looking to expand what pharmacists do? I think it's the opportunity with the new model. Um, the term you hear now anytime you start talking with another healthcare provider is metrics. Everything is being measured uh, with, with everything being uh, uh, graded. Give you an example with uh, long-term care. Everybody has these star ratings now. And part of the star ratings are derived from your readmittance rate. So if a hospital discharges to a nursing facility and they end up back in the hospital in 48 hours, it goes against both the hospital and the long-term care facility. And Medicare is going to be fixing payment or lack of payment to these kind of metrics. So everybody's concerned with those metrics. So anything we can do in that system to keep people healthier, longer, and out of the hospital is what's going to drive the thing. It's ultimately, as everything else is going to be, it's going to be cost-driven. Uh, but I think at the same time, with the new models, we can save costs and improve quality of care. All right. But money is the elephant in the room. Uh, that's what kind of drives our health system today. Yes, it does. Uh, you have not had, with these kind of proposals, uh, physician groups, many doctors, do not support this. Um, I mean, many people would look at it and just say, well, this means that they will be losing business. Doctors would come back and say, you know what, I went through uh, years of uh, med school, owe hundreds of thousands of dollars in loans, or that's what it cost me to go through med school. There's a reason I went through medical school in that I've been trained to deal with these issues, not pharmacists. Your response to that? My response is that we are certainly not trying to supplant the physician in the healthcare process at all. They, are, they play a very important role. Their diagnosis expertise, their um, care for patients is, is not unmatched. Um, we just want to be that adjunct arm for them. We can work with their medications. We can help control the patient who's on di who has diabetes. We can work with them on hypertension. So there's a lot of different roles where the pharmacist can step in and work with the physician collaboratively. Chuck mentioned collaborative practice agreements. I don't think in any case are we trying to replace that physician, just help them out so we can care for more patients. Well, if that be the case, then why do doctors uh, oppose this in many cases? I don't honestly know because I do know that when you talk to many of the physicians who have already partnered with pharmacists, they love it. They are saying, this is the best thing. Pharmacists are really helping me out. So I think it's a learning curve, a relationship development thing. Um, but when they know and trust the pharmacists that they're working with, they have found nothing but delight in that assistance. But when you're talking about the expansion of Medicare, B, D, uh, well, D already, but uh, for Medicare Part uh, B, that that is money that probably would be coming out of a physician's pocket. I think that's how some of them with a very narrow focus are seeing it. 
But I think the bigger focus is talking about patient care. And there are, as Chuck alluded to, many patients out there, more that's growing every day, and there are less physicians. What are we going to ultimately do? Um, Medicare is looking at star ratings. Um, it wants results. It wants proven results. It wants quality of care. Um, and the only way to get there is if we can all work together on this. You also have said that uh, this would save money. In what way? The, the cost savings on uh, hospital admissions. I think we spend almost $300 billion B, uh, uh, dollars a year on adverse drug events leading to hospitalizations. So if we can make any kind of dent in their patient uh, regimen, get them better controlled, less chance of adverse reactions, the savings are incredible. The Ohio study in 2012 from the National Governors Association paper showed that for every dollar spent on MTM, medication therapy management, $4.40 was returned to the system. So again, it comes out of that pocket and you say, well, it's costing money, and it does cost it out of this bucket, but it saves an awful lot out of the other side of the bucket on the hospitalization piece. What about insurers? Uh, you know, from what I understand, insurers haven't exactly gotten on board with this because it doesn't help their bottom line. Well, th there, there's a couple factors there, and that's why the provider status push, because the insurers will kind of follow what Medicare does. So if Medicare grants provider status and payment for services, the, the private insurers generally follow. Um, and to be sure, uh, I don't want to beat up the insurance industry, but when it comes specifically to pharmacy, there, there's a piece of a pie. And, and sometimes the pharmacy benefit manager industry is taking a disproportionate piece of the pie for what they're serving. We can fill a $200 prescription, make $4, and the PBM makes $12 for adjudicating the claim. Something's not necessarily right there, but they're driving the industry and they're driving the cost containment but that cost containment is can be very deceptive. If you, uh, if this expansion uh, occurred, would pharmacists have to carry malpractice insurance? We do already. You do already. We do already. But would it be more costly? Because that's you know one of the big complaints of a physician is the uh, amount of uh, malpractice insurance that they have to carry. I know it did not go up the immunizations. Uh, almost, I think every one of my staff is an immunizing pharmacist. Um, but I, it may possibly go up if we were doing some more direct patient care services. Give me an idea of what a pharmacist uh, pays in malpractice insurance. It's really very reasonable. I, I have it as part of my regular policy, and then I carry an extra umbrella myself, and you're really only talking a couple hundred dollars a year, as opposed to physician friends who are paying tens of thousands of dollars a year. Let's go to Raymond in Bethlehem. Raymond, you're on the air. Hi, how you doing? I just wanted to share that uh, one of the national thought leaders for medication therapy management is right here in Pennsylvania. His name is Michael Evans. He's out of Geisinger Health System, and he has 43 medication management therapy clinics in uh, Pennsylvania already. And just like the uh, pharmacist there suggested, they started with Coumadin, and then the healthcare system came to them with problems. Uh, hemoglobin A1C is above nine more than a year hyperlipidemic patients on three meds and not a goal. And slowly as these healthcare uh, problems presented themselves, they, they reached out to pharmacy to help them to uh, increase better outcomes. And that's what I wanted to, uh, to share with you well, guys. Well, do you know whether they have gotten better outcomes? Um, well, in fact, the endocrinology department is not too happy at all because they're taking type 2 diabetics um, 
with hemoglobin A1C is above nine, and they've been crushing, uh, crushing the outcomes. And uh, they're not too happy about it. But if you look at it, a pharmacist in this clinic will uh, is specifically trained in diabetes. Uh, they're ADA trained. They do a lot of extra training for that purpose, and they get to see them more often. And in many cases, it's about educating the patient and getting them uh, compliant and getting their numbers under control. And if you're seeing that patient more often, like a pharmacist can, compared to an endocrinologist, um, that's part of it. All right. Thank you very much for your call. You know, one of the things that we uh, haven't discussed either uh, involves uh, being able to offer some medication, pharmacists being able to offer some medication. I know one that is cited most often has to do with birth control. Uh, but do you think that there are medications, not over-the-counter medications, that uh, pharmacists could... Uh, I hate to say prescribe because I don't think it would be a prescription, but you would be able to give to uh, to patients. I believe Florida is one of the few states that has a third class of medications, a, f a pharmacy only one. And I think there's a lot of over-the-counter medications that can be abused. Uh, you know, take some simple things like proton uh, proton pump inhibitors, Nexium, uh, Prilosec. You know, they're, they're great for short-term use, but if somebody finds themselves on it for six months or nine months or a year without really finding out what's going on, same with the uh, steroid inhalers that are becoming over-the-counter, Flonase, Nasonex, some of those kind of things. Um, there, there, there is certainly an argument that can be made there with controls of those medications where they're at least talking to somebody when they're getting them that they can track. Are they getting these for short-term? Are they long-term? What are we doing? There's certainly some advantages there. Okay, that now that's advice, though. I mean, that's kind of the role that you play already. I'm talking about uh, someone comes in and says, uh, you know, a woman comes in and says that uh, I would like uh, birth control. Um, and now, I mean, it's not like they have to go to a doctor for that all the time anyway, but sometimes it is prescribed by, by a physician. But is that something that a pharmacist, if, if, a, if a woman came in and said that to you, what would you uh, say to them? Well, in Pennsylvania, I wouldn't say anything. Right. I, can't, I can't touch it. <laughs> well, yeah, there, but is that what you would there, say? There are some, well, I would certainly tell them they would need to see their physician. There are some states in the West, and I think there might be two, uh, that, that are allowed to prescribe contraceptives. Um, but I, no, I not here. I believe there's some states who also allow pharmacists to do some limited prescribing of antibiotics as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's take another phone call from Norm in Lancaster. Norm, you're on the air. Uh, thank you. Just a few comments. Uh, before the pharmacist... Uh, possibly start dipping into the Medicare funds, uh, which presumably would uh, make my Medicare payments uh, probably go up, I would like to see uh, more money spent on dealing with Medicare fraud and abuse before we have other parties kind of dipping into those funds. I'll take uh, comments off air. Right. Thanks. Thanks for your call. And actually, I, I would touch on that in, in a second because um, all the studies that we've seen where the pharmacists have become involved with uh, therapy management interventions have resulted in savings to the system. Yes, that one side of the bucket may spend a few more dollars, but the savings on the other side are always running four or five factor. So that in the end, I think it would be A, less expensive, and B, a healthier, higher quality of life. You know, one thing, as I was reading about this before today's program, and I saw it mentioned several times, is that uh, there are those who fear the potential for abuse for Medicare. Kind of 
you know, raise my eyebrows like, okay, are, is that that much of an issue the way it is now that if you put more people in the system who are able to uh, be paid through Medicare, that abuse and fraud, it could be uh, a potential problem? Certainly, you don't want to see any abuse and fraud, but um, sometimes I'm amazed at the hoops that we have to jump through for certification on various areas. I mean, obviously, we're a full-size pharmacy, and yet we do that uh, whatever annual or every other year recertification with Medicare where somebody is on site looking at things. In today's computer age, I think that fraud and abuse is a whole lot easier to detect than it may have been years ago. I'm always stunned when I see the pill mill clinics in Florida, which we all know about, uh, where they finally recently come down very hard on those, that they could have possibly gone on that long. But, our, but again, it's government, and it's not always fast, and it's not always efficient. But I don't see this as being something that would lead to widespread abuse. Something you listed uh, a number of drugs that are now familiar to uh, so many people because we see them advertised on television. And I'm always curious. You know, I, I've asked doctors this question. You know, how often do you have patients coming in and say, well, I saw this on TV. I want to get this. What about pharmacists? Oh, it's the same way. It, it used to be you were the expert, and now somebody walks in, they've already wet, read through 42 websites and 50 articles, and then they come in and ask what you think. And so you've got to kind of hedge your bets and know where you are with that, and you know, they may be coming at it from a very biased opinion. But what you bring is you have that, you know, they're reading specific bullets. You have that how it interrelates to the whole system, so you try to find out, you know, what are you thinking, what have you read, and, and let me try to help you tie that together. But do you run into that, like, every day? A lot. Really? A lot. Yeah. Yeah. Even with all the uh, with all the side effects listed. Yeah. Well, the side effects listing again. When you look at a package insert, it unfortunately it lists every interaction and oh, side yeah. effect, even if it's one in a hundred thousand. So I, the one that's one of the hardest things is. People will oftentimes come and say, I don't want to take this because it's going to do A, B, C, D, My and E. My tongue's going to swell up. Exactly. Yeah. And most times it's not. I think sometimes we put so much in there that it can be a deterrent for somebody taking the medication. I've had that discussion with patients many times. Uh, well, we only have a few minutes left. I want to thank both of you for being on the program. Patricia, the legislation, now this is in Congress, both in the House and the Senate, uh, and this legislation has to do with uh, payment for Medicare. So where does it stand? Uh, right now, the House bill has uh, 264 sponsors, which is really, really pretty good. Um, so we're looking to see if we can get some movement out of it. On the Senate side, it has 41 sponsors. Um, in Pennsylvania, I believe 13 of our 18 congressmen have supported the House bill, and one of our senators has, um, Casey. Um, so we're looking for uh, Pat Toomey's support on the bill on the Senate side. Um, we have great hopes for it to move forward. Um, certainly, there's a lot of belief in it, a lot of support, a lot of pharmacists are talking about it, a lot of their patients are talking about it. It's certainly something that's needed and could do a lot of good. I want to thank our guest today, Patricia Apple, who is Secretary Treasurer of the Pennsylvania Pharmacists Association, and Charles Craig, owner of Hershey CKC Pharmacy and Gift Shop. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Are Pennsylvania households that get their water from private water companies paying more? A survey conducted by a Washington-based advocacy group says yes, and here to tell us more about it is Emily Previty, who is uh, with the WITF's Keystone Crossroads Project. Emily, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Scott. Good morning. All right. Uh, so those who get their water from private water companies are paying more in Pennsylvania. What did you find? 
So um, the survey looked at the 500. Okay, survey. Maybe we should start there. Which survey are you talking about? <laughs> Food and Water Watch, which is, um, as you said, a D.C.-based advocacy group. Um, they are of the opinion that in most cases public the public should own and control utilities. So that's that's their standpoint, which they are very they're, they don't shy away from making that known. Um, their numbers, they looked at the 500 la- largest water systems in the country, um, and they tracked a couple of things. Rates um, based on you know an average household using 60,000 gallons uh, of water per year, what that would, would add up to in an annual bill. They looked at how many customers um, they, they have and whether they were public or privately owned. Um, so it, the... I mean, there were several things that you find by looking through the data. Um, One of them is that Pennsylvania's private water companies are charging customers more than elsewhere in the country. Now, that's for the largest systems. Um, And, you know, the markup between public and private is larger in Pennsylvania. Uh, There's a a bigger difference than in, in other states. All right, so let's break this down a little bit. Of those 500 largest companies, uh, how many Pennsylvania privately owned companies? Pennsylvania privately owned companies, there are seven. Seven in the top five. Seven systems. Seven um, systems, I think okay. four companies, yeah. Okay, so seven. So a total of 11 or am I? A total of 19. Total of 19. Public and private together. Oh, okay. So seven private within those seven, four different companies. So those were seven systems run by four companies, I believe. And there were 11, um, no, 12, 12 public companies mm-hmm. or public systems rather. Okay. So, so what did you find then that the, the, the rates are higher? So the, um, the, the public versus private markup nationally is between 55 and 60%, depending on if you look at the average or the median. Um, and that's about $175, $180 a year. It, we're using 60,000 gallons, obviously. If your usage is less, it's a little less, more, a little bit more. In Pennsylvania, the public-private markup is 84% if you're using average as your barometer, and it's more than double if you're using the median as your barometer. So that's between 325 and $410 per year. And that's when you're talking about that, that's in addition. That's higher than what the average would be. Correct. Right. Okay. Big question is why. So um, one of the things that I think is, and and to clarify, public water in Pennsylvania is also slightly more expensive than the national average. Again, this is based on the survey of the 500 largest, so it's not every single system in the state or the country. Um, but it is a good snapshot because it controls for those economies of scale you would find in a large um, in a large system versus uh, small. And so. Anyway, um, the infrastructure costs are going to be universal um, in, in PA. That's one thing you hear everyone talking about. This We're an older state, one of the oldest states, and our infrastructure is, is aging. It needs to be replaced, and those replacement um, costs are coming to bear right about now. They have been for the past several years as some of um, you know the piping and treatment facilities that were put in in the in the 70s are kind of re- maybe reaching the end of their useful life. That's for treatment. Um, 
systems and then piping lasts longer than that but that is another yeah when you cost. said 1970s i was thinking whoa you must <laughs> no that's, almost that's, for, that's for the treatment yeah. systems not for the piping uh, yeah because the piping in pennsylvania like 100 years we, yeah, we have yeah. we have in many of our cities in many of our areas um you know pipes that are 75 sure. 100 and, years and old. again the 70s is more for the, the treatment okay um, so infrastructure is is one of the factors we hear so many people talk about infrastructure um um, most of the time, it has to do with transportation. Now, Pennsylvania legislatively dealt with uh, transportation infrastructure a few years ago with Act 89, providing some funding for that. But as far as infrastructure uh, having to do with water, gas lines, that kind of thing, I know of no real big move across the state to try to modernize. I know, you know, obviously water water companies would, would like to do this, but it's a question of money. Is there some great move to do this? Um, I would say that part of the, I don't know that it's as, um, we don't hear about it as much as the um, initiatives that are in place to improve roads and bridges. Right. Um, but part of the, there's PennVest, you know, the right. um, and they... We'll explain what PennVest is. So that's, I mean, that's basically a state-run bank, a state-run lender um, that is specific for uh, water, wastewater infrastructure projects, and they will lend public entities money at a low rate and sometimes private companies as well because they're, you know, providing a ut utility So for, through a, a P3, essentially, a public-private um, partnership. They'll, they'll lend at low rates to, to private providers. And... Um, in addition to that, the way the uh, the the statutes read, there are incentives built in, and it says this in in the statute because they want private companies to invest in some of the projects that perhaps um, public systems can't afford or to take over systems that are too small to be viable in, in the words of what the legislation. So why does an aging infrastructure contribute to higher rates? It's an upgrade cost. I mean, it costs money. To so they're constantly, they're constantly trying to upgrade. Right. Right. Uh, and here in Pennsylvania, that cost can be passed on to uh, to consumers, right? Yes. Uh, does that make us unique? I don't know that it. There are other states that have that um, that allowance. Uh, Pennsylvania was the first, though, to separate it out as a separate consideration from all of the other expenses that a company might incur. So when a company goes in for a base rate change, they put everything on the table in terms of all of their different costs. So that's operational paying um, personnel and, and staff and, and laborers, as well as infrastructure improvement, um, financing and borrowing costs, uh, and things along those lines. So that's when they go in for a full base rate change. If Separating out the infrastructure costs makes for a faster, easier process for the utility and the regulator because you're looking at like one factor, maybe multiple projects, but it's more controlled. So that's something that they essentially allow companies to come in to to request to tack on to a rate. When you say that, you're, we're talking about the Public the, Utility Commission. The Public Utility Commission allows companies to come in and ask for that in between a full base rate change. Um, and Pennsylvania's limit as far as how much um, the, the percentage of uh, system improvement costs can be passed on 
annually to the consumer uh, that they're on the high end compared to some other states, which th that information, the um, financial information I'm talking to you about, that it's on the high end, the 7.5 percent, um, that is from a survey that uh, Janney Capital Markets did um, to kind of give investors the lay of the land in terms of water utilities nationally. So right, we're going to talk, talk more about the PUC's role <laughs> in uh, higher rates in just a moment, but let's talk about investors. Uh, you pretty much just answered this question, but just to clarify it a little bit more, Pennsylvania private water companies are attractive to private investors, correct? Yes. And so we talked about the distribution system improvement charge, which is called a DISC, even though that's not really the way the acronym goes. It's called a DISC. And in addition to that, uh, they allow um, a return on equity, return on investment to be wrapped into the cost that can be passed on to consumers and at a rate that's higher than every other state except for Texas. Um, the Johnny survey looked at to determine this, they looked at what they called a recent average of allowable returns on equity that could be passed on to consumers um, and found that it was, for PA, it was 10.4%, 11.4% in Texas, and the rest of the states they looked at were lower than that. Mm -hmm. So that's another factor. Um, they looked at the speed with which the state processes applications for base rate changes, um, and Pennsylvania was middle, what they considered middle of the road for that um, between nine months and a year. So those were some of the things um, that that they looked at. Mm -hmm. uh, so just to summarize, two big reasons that Pennsylvania private water systems, water companies uh, have higher rates, aging infrastructure, mm -hmm. and uh, those higher returns to, in, to investors. Now, as you mentioned, the Public Utility Commission sets rates. What does the PUC take into account? Well, they take into account basically the costs that we talked about, right? So operational costs, um, system improvement costs, what the company is expecting as far as investment returns um, and what they'll allow for that. Um, and they also look at what's con you know, reasonable or fair for, for consumers. And it should be noted that m almost always the PUC is approving less than what a utility we're at will ask for whether they're publicly owned or privately owned. So the public guys are going in and asking for more, too, those that are regulated by the PUC. Uh, you, and, and by the way, Emily's reporting on this, and you'll have uh, something on the website uh, very soon, right? Sure, right. Yeah, just a, a blog post on about this survey and sort of putting into context a lot of what our conversation's about. But I am going to let it tonight to report on the fallout um, over some... Um, withheld testing results, and it is a private company dealing with the water there. So our, our entire team has sort of turned to lead, which is an issue that gets into um, construction and paint and stuff like that, as well as with the water testing processes in Pennsylvania to sort of follow up on the, the Flint crisis. And as part of that, that's why I'm going to Lidditz tonight. We'll talk a little bit about that in just a moment. Uh, if you're just tuning in, our guest is WITF's Keystone Crossroads reporter, Emily Previty, talking about uh, why Pennsylvania private water companies' rates are higher than uh, other states across the country and actually higher than uh, municipal rates or uh, also higher than, uh, than public rates. Keystone Crossroads is a statewide initiative reporting on the challenges facing Pennsylvania cities. WITF is part of a 
collaboration with three other public media organizations. To learn more about this, visit WITF.org and click on Keystone Crossroads. It is supported regionally by the law firm of McNeese, Wallace, and Newark. Now, Emily, someone hearing that uh, would say, well, what does this have to do with cities, the challenges facing Pennsylvania cities? You just talked about Flint, uh, that there has been so much more attention paid to water systems as a result of the lead contamination in Flint, Michigan. We're not necessarily talking about lead, although that, as you just said, could be part of the conversation. But why is Keystone Crossroads involved in this? So cities, um, as they... Okay, so if a city needs to upgrade it, its its water system, um, they're going to have to borrow to do that. No one has cash on hand. That's That's enough to handle um, that kind of expense. And some are able to handle it. Like we see the city of Lancaster, they're a good example of a system that's proactive and sort of chipping away. Um, and financially, they appear to be fine. Now, um, Lancaster, what what type of uh, system is that? Water, the water system, water wastewater system. Oh, the wastewater system. Okay. Water, well, water system. I'm, I'm is that a municipal? Is like yes, a, that's municipal. what I'm. That's what yeah. I'm looking Sorry, for. Sorry, I wasn't okay. sure what you meant by no, what kind no. of system. Yeah. Um. And and so, but most many cities uh, aren't in as good a financial shape. Um. If if they are in good financial shape, they can borrow at extremely low rates. But if they're distressed, they may not be able to to even access the market or or get a competitive rate. And in those cases it may be even less expensive um, for a private company to, um, to to finance a project like that, particularly if they're able to get involved with a, a P3, a public-private partnership, as they may be in Pennsylvania with, with PennVest. So um, again, as cities face um, mandates in some cases or simple um, wear and tear uh, pipes coming to the end of their useful life, they may need to do these upgrades but not have clearly won't have the cash on hand and may not be able to finance it cost effectively if at all on their own and so they're looking for that reason as well as pension crisis might need a multi-million dollar hundreds of millions of dollars in some cases cash infusion and a sale of an asset like a water system can provide that we saw that happen in Allentown. Um, we saw it happen in Coatesville. Different results. Um, and York is considering that. So is Scranton. Now, when you say that uh, different results between Coatesville and Allentown, what were the results? So um, Coatesville ended up selling to a private company. Allentown considered that, but they did a long-term lease to the Lehigh County Authority. So they kept it public. Um, they kept some degree of control because it's a lease. They didn't completely hand over ownership. In both cases, um, rates went up. Uh, I think the percentage was higher in Coatesville. I, um, so. I seem to remember reading about that, and it, and it was. Jeff from York sends us an email saying, all private water companies currently have about a 100-year replacement schedule. That's 1% of pipe replaced per year. Uh, this is mandated by the PUC. Uh, this is already happening in private water companies. In government-run utilities, very few have a replacement plan in place, and they think their pipes have a 1,000-year-plus lifespan. This is not likely and will lead to huge liability in the near future. 
this may be why prices uh, are different as well. Sure. Now, I think that thousand-year lifespan, he's exaggerating a little bit, but uh, uh, he, the point that he does bring up, what do you think? I think that in some cases that's certainly true. We saw that in, in Harrisburg. Um, the Harrisburg Authority is now called Capital Region Water. Um, when there was sort of a shift in leadership, they did a new name to sort of represent a, a new beginning because there was some what some people would describe as mismanagement in terms of really deferring infrastructure maintenance. Um, and, you know, rates did go up um, a couple of years ago when the you know new regime, so to speak, decided to, you know, deal with the problem finally. And um, the but they're still not as high as some of the private rates. One and two, that's not true of every um, publicly run uh, water uh, system, like we already gave the example of Lancaster, you know, and they, you know, they're increasing their rates a little bit this year. It's still not going to get them anywhere near. So I think there is something um, to what this gentleman is saying. PUC doesn't do a comparative in the same way that um, that this this non this nonprofit did. Um, they just they advised me to go separately into the reports of each of the water systems, and there are 87 of them, I believe, um, the water systems they do oversee and pull the numbers myself since they don't keep the rates in a comparative fashion. So I guess I'm, I'm trying to kind of do that, but it's a little bit labor intensive. You mentioned this organization that uh, did the report, and you said that uh, they make no bones about it, that uh, they oppose privately owned water companies. Uh, you also had utilities who came back to you and said, they're not competent or, or that they don't have credibility. Put it that way. I shouldn't say competent. Sure. I meant uh, they, they don't have credibility. Right. And they didn't really show. I mean, I was aware without speaking to the utility company of, of their standpoint. It's very it's obvious when you read the report. However, my concern was more the accuracy of the data, because when you're looking at something like this, you're not just going to take one report, especially when Pennsylvania appeared to be so near the top and run with it. Um, and they didn't dispute the numbers. And when I checked them against some publicly available information, no, I didn't check all 500 rates that they quoted, but the ones I did check were right. So as far as I can tell, their numbers are accurate, even if, you know, like most sources, they have some degree of bias. You also say that the, this group suggested one of the reasons that Pennsylvania's uh, private water company rates are higher because of campaign contributions. Um, and the first thing I thought of when I when you, we were talking about that is, well, regulators don't, you know, regulators don't uh, take campaign contributions. Elected officials or those running for elected office do. Well, what they said was the um, relationship of the industry to um, to regulators and to state officials. So that was one of the things that I looked at was campaign contributions. Now, in the grand scheme of industries contributing money to politicians at the state level, um, the numbers were not very large. However, within the industry, Pennsylvania was number two. California was number one in terms of what they were getting, um, what state officials were getting from water utility companies. Now, this is according to the databases kept by the National uh, Institute on Money and State Politics. That's where I pulled that from. So, Emily, we have about 30 seconds left. Uh, from what I understand, the trend now is to go to more private systems, correct? The trend in Pennsylvania, yes. Why? Well, we talked about we kind of I would say that we covered that for the most part in terms of cities not being able to finance some okay. of these projects on their own. 
in many cases, and I know that we don't have much time left, but back to the thing about the relationship between regulators um, and uh, industry, I think also, and this is across the board many times, those with expertise in, in some of the areas where there needs to be policy formulation are those from industry. That's not necessarily a, a bad thing, um, and I don't know that we should be angry about it in this case. It just simply is. Mm-hmm. Emily Previty is WITF's Keystone Crossroads reporter, and you can read uh, her coverage of this issue and many others Keystone Crossroads. Go to WITF.org. Emily, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Scott. Coming up tomorrow, WITF's Pick of the Month and Aaron's Book's Pick of the Month, Gateway to Freedom, the author of the book, Eric Foner, will be with us.